Hi, this is Pastor Matt Parra, and I'm here with you to talk about this week's Sabbath School lesson, which was entitled, The Bible, the Authoritative Source of Our Theology. Now, this week's lesson talks about four other sources from which we derive our understanding of Scripture. There is tradition, culture, reason, and experience. And the Bible, or the lesson highlights the fact that the Bible declares that it should be the authoritative source of our theology. And it goes on to infer that if we use these other sources of authority to define what is true, then we are not paying regard to God and we're not paying respect to the Bible. Like a child who relates to their parents on their own terms is the person who uses other sources to determine what is authoritative and true. Uh, this is the, the, one of the main points of the lesson. It does not disregard the fact that culture, tradition, experience, reason play a part in how we interpret the world and how we understand our reality, yet at the same time it uh, affirms the fact that the biblical Christian, the person who is truly broken on the rock, is, is someone who is willing to exalt Scripture in their lives. Now, I want to just begin this commentary with some remarks on a story that's found in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is approached by a wealthy man who is interested in discovering from him how he might attain to eternal life. It's interesting because the man approaches Jesus and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him is, Why do you call me good? There's one good, and that's God in heaven. Now this is a very interesting response. The man seems to be approaching Jesus in a very polite way. He's, he's being very, you know, it seems at least, that he's just being, you know, hey, courteous and kind and considerate. And he's saying, hey, good, good teacher. Good, I think you're good, and I think you're a, a good teacher. And since I think you're a good teacher, I feel like I could get some good advice from you. I feel like you could give me some guidance and some understanding. So, hey, good teacher, uh, how, how do I... How do I attain to? How do I find my way into eternal life? I want to live forever. I want to enjoy God's blessings forever. And, and, and how do I find eternal life? And Jesus' response seems to be an interesting one to me. Uh, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? There's, there's one who's, who's good. That's God in heaven. Now, I think what, this, uh, what Jesus is attempting to do is to uh, help this man to be calibrated correctly or to, to orient him correctly to himself. Jesus knows that this man is going to have to relate to him properly if he is going to be of any use to this man. He is speaking, Jesus is speaking on God's behalf, and this man has to understand that. If this man does not understand that, this man is not going to take to heart and apply what Jesus tells him. So, how, how do I obtain to eternal life? How do I gain eternal life? Why do you call me good? Why does Jesus say that as the first response to this man? It's because this man is not approaching him correctly. This man is not relating to him correctly. This man is not coming to him as if he is coming to hear from God. 
He's coming to Jesus as he would come to just any other common teacher. You know, and, and if you come to Jesus as if he's just some other common teacher, well, he's not going to do you any good. And, and, and really, you'll just disregard what he has to say if it doesn't jive with your preconceived notions and ideas and with your experience and with your logic and with your reason and, and with your culture. You know, like this man has his own culture. He has his own experience. He has his own uh, perspective and reason and, and sense. And he understands that Jesus has all those things too. And he approaches Jesus in a seemingly flattering way. Oh, good, good master. What must I do to obtain eternal life? And uh, Jesus uh, tries to set the record straight. He tries to orient himself and this man uh, correctly before he begins to share anything with this man. And, uh, hey, why do you call me good? There's one good. That's God in heaven. So, so please hear what I'm saying. And please see the connectedness of what I'm saying in relationship to this week's Sabbath school lesson. This man is approaching Jesus similarly to how many people approach the Bible. Hey, good master. Hey, good teacher. How can I find eternal life? How can I gain eternal life? I want something from you, and I hope you can give me some good advice. I can apply to my life, and everything will be okay. Um, well, what Jesus is, is going to say in his interactions with this man are going to rock this man to the core. And if this man can see, if this man can understand, if this man can believe that he's being spoken to by God, by the infinite God of the universe who is telling him the truth, who's giving him the best counsel that he could possibly receive, if he could see that and understand that and know that and trust that and believe that, well then guess what? He could be saved. He could, he could attain to eternal life. But if he just approaches Jesus in a casual manner, the same way you would approach just some other rabbi who traveled the world and whatnot, you know, then, then it's just not going to work. It's just not going to happen for you. And Jesus is trying to set this record straight. Um, when we approach the Word of God, which uh, is the written equivalent of Jesus, and I say that because Jesus is the living Word of God, the embodiment of God's Word in, in, the, in a personal form, uh, as the Bible is the written Word of God, uh, the expressed thoughts of God in written form. Um, so Jesus is the living equivalent of the written Word of God. And so if, if, we, if, this, if we approach the written Word of God the way this man is approaching the living Word of God, I think the, the written Word of God will, will say to us what Jesus said to this man. Hey, why do you call me good? Why do you call the Bible good? There's one good. That's God in heaven. This, this book is good. This Bible is good if it came from God. If it didn't come from God, don't call it good. If this is not the inspired word of Almighty God speaking truth to you in, in every facet, well, don't call it good. Call it just another document that kind of has some good advice in it, right? And I think that's the essence of what this week's lesson is trying to communicate. And I think it's what we all need to uh, settle in our minds. The Bible is God's word or it's not. Jesus was the embodiment of God's kingdom or he wasn't. And he wasn't leaving this man any second option. Now follow the narrative a little bit further down. Uh, Jesus says, hey, um, uh, keep, keep the commandments, you know, keep, keep the commandments. And then he quotes the last six of the Ten Commandments. Jesus quotes. And um, sorry, he doesn't quote the last six. He quotes five of the last six of the Ten Commandments. And he leaves out the, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. And it's interesting because the man's response is, this is great. Uh, all, the, all these things I, I have done. I, I've done all these things since, since I was a child. And then Jesus' response to him was, um, young man, there's one thing that you lack. 
there's one thing lacking, and, and, and that is you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And I promise you, you will have riches in heaven. So Jesus is saying, I, I require, to, heaven requires you committing everything to God. Now, understand that Jesus is not trying to communicate that the, the, that the payment price that this man had to, how do, you, how do you say this? Jesus was not trying to say that this man could buy his way to heaven. Jesus was not saying, hey, listen, if you, if you, if you pay out God by providing for the poor, well, then that's going to give, give, entitle you for heaven. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is just simply saying, you have to relinquish your hold over all the things you possess and acknowledge and recognize that all that you have really belongs to God and should be employed in the service of God, uh, then you can't get to heaven. Uh, God does not accept half-hearted commitments. God does not accept partial commitments. God is God or he's not God and all that you have belongs to him or, or, or you're not truly, genuinely committed to the God of heaven and therefore you're not going to go to heaven where God rules, where God reigns. So God's the ruler of your life now. Um, and if he's not, then you're not going to the, to the kingdom that he rules completely. And so, you know, once again, Jesus is not trying to say to this man, you can buy your way to heaven by paying for some things for poor people, by, by providing for poor people. He's just simply saying, hey, listen, um, God owns everything or he doesn't. You belong to God. Your possessions belong to God. And they must all, you must, and your possessions must be employed in God's service, or you're not really following God, and you're not acknowledging Him as God, and you're not relating to Him as God, and therefore, why, why would you go, want to go to heaven? You don't want to go to heaven. You don't want to go to the place where God reigns. Okay, so this is, in essence, what Jesus is communicating, uh, and we must see this. So the man, the Bible says, after hearing this, he walks away sorrowful. He turns around, and he, and he, and he walks away sorrowfully. Okay, you know, um, yeah, well, because he was very rich, the Bible says. So his riches were worth more to him than the kingdom of heaven that Jesus represented. Uh, and, and, and so he walks away and he's lost. Now, okay, back to the first point. Why do you call me good? There's one good. That's God in heaven. Jesus knows what he's about to call this man to. And he knows that if this man doesn't relate to him as God as, as, as an authoritative source of God's word, well, then this man is not going to actually follow him and apply his counsel. And the same goes with us and with the Bible. It comes from God, and it's the authoritative word of God, or it's not. And if we don't see that it is, well, then we're not going to believe it, and we're not going to practice it, and we're not going to apply it to our lives, and it's going to do no, no good. I think this is important for us uh, to, to accept and understand. Now, in God's word, there are uh, messages that are important and necessary, just like the message that Jesus delivered to this man. And if we just see Jesus' word, if we just see the Bible as, you know, good teachings, well, we'll do the same thing eventually that this man did. We'll walk away sorrowful because we won't give up our possessions. I want you to compare these possessions in this story to, you know, what the lesson study is talking about this week. Your experiences your reasoning capacity, your culture, and your, the bents that you've developed through your cultural context, 
and, uh, and your tradition. Okay, now, um, these things, as I've said before, are not inherently bad things, but, but they can become bad when we relate to them inappropriately or, as if, or when we exalt them as the authoritative source of, of, of interpreting Scripture, of our theology, okay? So, I want to point you... I'm just going to make some, some commentary on some of the lessons, texts, and Scriptures. I'm not going to comment on everything. Uh, I just encourage you to study the rest of the lesson. It was really good. I feel like it was a fair treatment of the subject. It, it, as much as you could treat the subject in, you know, short lessons uh, for each day. This is a, a broad and, and magnificent... It's a broad and giant topic... And so surely a Sabbath school lesson for one one week can't be exhaustive or, or too terribly thorough. But I think the lesson does a fair job, a good job, of treating the subject in the amount of time that the lesson has to treat the subject. Now, Sunday's lesson uh, was about tradition. And it talks about a story in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7 where Jesus and his disciples are criticized by the religious leaders of his day for not eating with with washed and cleaned hands. Now, so that you know, when you read this passage of Scripture, their concern was not sanitation. They were not uh, into washing their hands. I mean, that was part of the issue, but that wasn't the primary issue that uh, caused these religious leaders to criticize Jesus and his disciples. Uh, They ceremonially washed their hands after dealing with Gentiles. And the basic thinking was, these Gentiles are sinners, and they have sin all over them. They're defiled and polluted. And so when you touch them, and you interact with them, and you socialize with them, before you eat, you need to wash your hands so that you can get, you know, the essence of them off of you. The, uh, the vibe of them, the, the spirit of those people needs to get off your hands, because if it doesn't, if the sin that has transferred itself from their bodies to your hands doesn't get off your hands before you eat. It's going to go inside of you and defile your heart and your mind, and you're going to become evil and sinful like them. So they basically supposed that you know those evil people over there, if they interacted with us enough, they could make us evil but just by the touch, right? Now, it is true that uh, you can be influenced by externalities, and your uh, interactions with other people do affect you. Uh, but it is not true that the source of evil is them and, and, and not us. And it, it, it's not true that, that there are certain classes or races of people that are more righteous in themselves than others or more evil in themselves than others. And that was the thinking of the Jewish uh, leadership, the Jewish aristocracy at the time. And so they had this tradition, or we could call it a policy, to wash your hands ceremonially before you ate and this would, this would basically kind of remind you, you're God's uh, chosen people, and you're called for a purpose, and, and really that's not necessarily a bad thing, but when it gets to the point where you make this a rule, like a moral rule, and you think that everyone needs to, uh, to, to practice this, this policy, practice this tradition, that's where you're getting a little confused, that's where you're getting a little off base, and this is what was happening to the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And so Jesus challenges them, and, and he, basically, he basically tells them, look, you take food into your mouth, digestion happens, you go to the toilet, you expunge all of the waste, and, and you're, you're clean, you're fine. It's, it's, you, know, you don't get sin on you. He explains to these religious leaders the, the basic process of digestion, and then goes on to uh, say to them, 
you guys are really hypocritical here. Okay, so just consider what you're doing. You have this policy where people can break the fifth commandment and not honor their mother and, your, and their father because of a tradition, because of a policy that you have. And he just ex, ex, explains this tradition of Corbin where you can be relieved of your responsibility as a son or a daughter to your parents by uh, just committing some of your resources to the temple. And he's basically saying, look, you guys are so hypocritical. There's a, there's a moral commandment of God. There's a doctrine, a teaching that comes from God. God spoke it from Mount Sinai. He codified it in his moral law. It's the basis of his covenant with your, your people. And you're fully ignoring that. You're fully disregarding that. But you're, you're hyper-concerned about my disciples following your policies, your traditions. You guys are off your rocker. You need to get it together. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Hypocrites, he says. You're hypocrites. And then he quotes a verse from Isaiah and says, you know, well did Isaiah speak of you, and now this is just quoting from the top of my head, um, that these people draw near to me with their lips, but in their hearts they're far from me. Uh, in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so they had turned their own policies, their own traditions. And by the way, I think it's fair to compare policies and traditions because policy is really just written down tradition. And so they had turned their policies, their traditions, into the Word of God while they ignored the Word of God, which showed that they were setting themselves up as God by making their tradition the authoritative uh, word, you know, like the, the thing that, they, that was authoritative in their theology. So their theology was based more on their tradition than it was based on what God had said. Let's be careful not to do that. We, Paul, now, by the way, I don't look at this text and say, Oh, well, their policy was, was really, really terrible. I think how they related to their policy was terrible, and their bigotry was terrible, and their arrogance was terrible, but the policy itself, like, okay, it didn't have to be applied the way they applied it. They could say, hey, let's ceremonially wash our hands just to remind ourselves that, that hey, listen, this is, we're a holy people, like, because God has called us, and uh, he wants to use us for a holy purpose. He called us not because we're special. He called us so that we can be a blessing to the world. So let's wash our hands to remind ourselves of that fact. And, you know, but let's always remember, it's just our tradition to try to help ourselves. But let's never make it the word of God. And when other people don't do it, let's just be super gracious, uh, super generous, super liberal about this because it's just our policy, right? So they should have been liberal about their policy and not so liberal about the word of God. It was interesting because they were being very liberal with the fifth commandment, right? But they, they shouldn't have been liberal with the fifth commandment, not at all. They should have been radically conservative with the fifth commandment. But what they should have been liberal with was the policy and their relationship to the policy. I'll give you an example of this. Like yesterday I was reading my Bible in my office and my hands were dirty and I was noticing that the, the pages of my Bible in some places were getting dirty and I was thinking, oh yeah, my Bible's getting dirty all the time because I'm opening it and I'm studying it with dirty hands. So you know, maybe it'd be good. Like maybe I'll just, I literally thought about this while I was studying the lesson. I thought maybe I should wash my hands before I study my Bible and then just like do it as a, as a tradition, but like not say it to anyone and not make it like a big deal, but like I'll just do it privately. Number one, just to kind of keep my Bible clean. But number two, just to show, you know, in my heart, like between me and God, just a little personal thing between me and God, like to say, Hey God, this is your word and it reflects who you are, and I love who you are, and I just want to respect that, and so I'm never going to come to your word with dirty hands if I don't have to. And that's going to become my tradition. Like, like I'm not going to do that, by the way, but because 
because I'm always opening the Bible too much and I can't wash my hands like 20 times a day. Or, you know, like either those days where you're like, oh, what does that verse say? And you open the Bible and, you know, I just don't. Anyway, so I might implement that policy to a degree, but I don't think so. But let's just say that I did, and that was between me and God. And then I got to the point where I would see people opening the Bible without washing their hands and fully in my heart begin to be angry with them and frustrated with them and nasty towards them in my heart. I would be doing exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Now, the policy, like, it stems from, I think, good biblical principles, you know. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1.16, uh, and he's quoting the Old Testament, you know, be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And um, so the idea of holiness before God and, and sanctification before, and, and really consecrating yourself before God is a good idea, and it's a biblical idea. And I can, you know, develop a policy around that idea, uh, but I can't confuse that policy with the principles of God's Word or the, the teaching, the doctrine, the command of God's Word. As soon as I do that, I'm being full-on, 100%, like those Pharisees. And I've got to be careful not to do that, and you've got to be careful not to do that. There are policies in our church that we relate to similarly to how these Pharisees related to their washing of hands. And, and there are principles, biblical principles, doctrines, teachings that we ignore. So we, can, we in our church always argue about the liberal conservative thing. You know, there's these little parties and factions and uh, they stigmatize each other. And I think really what's behind it all is power and control, not theology at all. But I would say, just to comment on this dynamic, that uh, we should all be very liberal when it comes to uh, policy and policy not applying. Um, we should be very conservative when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the Word of God, the teaching of God, the Scripture, the doctrine. Um, uh, in the Reformation, they used to have this saying, in the Protestant Reformation, they would say, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now, policy is important. Tradition is, is important. Uh, it can be a helpful guide, but it is not God, and it does not always apply to every circumstance. Uh, and we have to remember this. We have to understand this to be the case. There is what is principle, and there's what is policy. I'm an, an, a director of a department, and I get requests for funding all the time at the conference office, and I have policies that guide our decisions on granting evangelism funds. When I get claims for evangelism that I think... When people, so if I get a claim from evan, for evangelism and it's outside of the guidelines, I, I don't just immediately go, well, the policy says I can't give funding for this uh, because I don't know how God is leading this church and I don't know um, what their you know, back plan is. You know, I don't know exactly how sometimes they're going to use this for evangelism. So I'll call the church, we'll have a conversation, we'll communicate, and I'll just say to them, look, can you show me how this is evangelistic, how this is an intentional attempt at soul winning and, 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 and bringing people to faith in Christ and to bringing them to the truth of the everlasting gospel? If they can do that, if, then, then I'm happy to say, well, yeah, cool. The policy guides, but the policy is not God. And I'm not going to sacramentalize the policy to the point that I make it the word of God. And uh, I'm willing to, to take responsibility and go, yeah, this, the spirit of that policy is good 
and, but it doesn't apply to this particular situation. You know, church comes to me and says, hey, we're doing this XYZ ministry. It's a little different. It's a little out of the box. But check this out. We've got 35 people in Bible studies because of it. We've got seven people that have been baptized because of it. These are, you know, faith-based, Bible-believing, Seventh-day Adventist Christians who came through this kind of seed-sowing ministry. They came through this, you know, community service ministry. Then guess what I say? Well, yeah, I can fund that. I can support that with evangelism funds because obviously you've connected all that ministry together and you've made it evangelistic and the policy can't account for that. So there's only so much that policy and tradition can account for when it comes to how we practice our faith. So anyways, I hope that this all gives you some understanding, some some enlightenment and, and some blessing for sure. So tradition, ah, let's be careful. Let's be careful not to make it what the leaders in Jesus' church made it. Um, yeah, amen. So uh, moving right along, I'll just touch on one last thing uh, that the lesson brings out. One last point, and then we'll just kind of end this commentary. I don't want to comment too much. You get tired of me. So one, uh, I can't remember which day of the lesson, but Monday's lesson talks about experience and how we should have a real living experience with Jesus. But yet at the same time, our experience should not be the basis for our faith because our experience is derived from our senses. We interpret our experience through our senses and our senses are limited and our senses are um, subject. And, and so therefore, they, they should not be the standard of what is true. They should not be the authoritative source of our theology. So our theology should not be birthed out of experience. It should stand upon the, the authoritative source for interpreting Scripture is the Scripture itself, not our experience. So, yes, we want to experience God. We want to feel God. We want to interact with Him on a personal level. He really does speak. We really do speak to Him. Uh, we really do experience Him on a sensory level. But we should never exalt our senses above the Word of God. Why? Because our senses can let us down. They can trick us. They can deceive us. The Bible says, in speaking about us, in Proverbs 28 and verse 26, Whosoever follows after their own heart is a fool. What the Bible is saying is that if you don't have the sense to realize that your senses can deceive you and trick you, you don't have a whole lot of sense at all. You're being foolish. A wise person, a person of understanding, will be able to stand back and see how untrustworthy their experience is as, as a basis for faith. Or, or So, so uh, give you an example of this. Let's just say hypothetically. It's just a, a little object lesson that will, will make the point. And I think you... I think I've explained it sufficiently for you to get the point that I'm making. Um, the Word of God comes from God, and God has better perspective. He's got better understanding. He's got better capacity. And therefore, trusting Him is a better idea than trusting yourself. Just like a, it's, it's, it's wise for a child to trust their parents more than they trust themselves, because their parents have more perspective, more experience, more understanding. They've been more developed by over time and, and whatnot. It's not to say the parents are always right, but, but they're right a lot more than kids. Trust me, I've got three of them. Um, and so uh, 
that's a, that's a good comparison. It's a fair comparison. But now let, let's just imagine that my, my child, they, they experience some terrible things. So they go off into the world and they are hurt. They are cast down. They're demeaned. They're crushed. Uh, they're treated harshly. And they begin to, because of those experiences, perceive reality a certain way and to perceive themselves a certain way. And then let's just say that I come to my son and I looked at him in the face and I say, look, it's wonderful that you exist. It's beautiful that you exist. I think you're brilliant and wonderful and awesome and you have extraordinary potential and you're, a, you're my son and you're, you're great. Um, you're everything to me, which means you have extraordinary value. I would hope that my son would choose to accept my word over their experience and what their experience is telling them about themselves. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, if our heart condemns us, then God is greater than our heart and knows everything. So God knows more than your heart. And your heart is what you use to interpret your experience. Your mind is what you use to interpret your experience. But your mind is carnal. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If you don't know that your senses are not the trustworthy source of authority in interpreting Scripture, well, the Bible says mm, you need to wise up. You need to, to, to get a grip and, and come to reality because you're living in an illusion. You're fully living in an illusion. If there is, in fact, a God and if He, in fact, has spoken to us, His Word is the source of authority, not our experience. And so experience should follow faith. Experience should follow faith in God's word. So yes, we're to experience God, but experience is not to be the basis of our faith because our experience can deceive us. <clears throat> the prophets of Baal on the Mount Carmel, they were experience-based believers in their gods. And Elijah was a faith-based believer. They got up and started jumping around, thinking that they're jumping around and, and cutting themselves and, and putting themselves through this experience of, of gesticulation and jumping around and breathing hot and heavy and chanting crazy pagan chants. They thought that that was going to bring them closer to God because they were experience-based believers in their gods. But Elijah just simply prayed to his God because he was, he, he had, he was, he was a faith-based believer through the word of God. And so he believed in, in Yahweh on the basis of Yahweh's word. He believed in the word of Yahweh and that was the basis of his faith. And so he just simply prayed and he got the fire from God. So in, in that situation at Mount Carmel, you have two classes of people represented. You have the people represented by the prophets of Baal who are experience-based believers. And you have the people represented by Elijah who are, who are faith-based believers, faith-based believers in the word of God. And um, both end up having an experience. But for the prophets of Baal, the, the experience was to proceed you know, God. It was to basically be the thing that invoked God's presence. Uh, but yeah, that's not how we should function. It, a good example of this too is in Mark chapter 16, Jesus gives the gospel commission to the disciples and he says, go and preach the gospel. And then he says, if you obey me and you go and preach the gospel, these signs will follow those who believe. So what you see there is, is, is in order. You see Jesus saying, number one, you hear my word. Number two, you obey my word. You go forward and obey me in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And then number three, 
signs will follow. You'll, you'll, you'll have this experience that is amazing and powerful, but faith goes first. Faith in the Word of God, not uh, experience. So, so faith in God's Word is the first thing, the paramount thing, the premier thing. Uh, it's, it's the authoritative Word of God that uh, we, we, we use to, def, to, to come to our theological understanding, not our experience. And, but experience follows that. And that's, that's okay. That's a good thing. So it's basically just there's a hierarchy here of, of, uh, of authority. And the, the premier authority in, in these texts is the Word of God. Uh, there's so much more that we could say, guys, but we're out of time. I've enjoyed spending this time with you. God loves you. And that's, that's, that's a fact uh, because he's spoken that in his Word. You may not feel it. You may not uh, sense it. But guess what? It is the object of facts of reality. And just think this week of Jesus dying on the cross. What did his experience tell him? Right? What, what, what would he have been reasoning while he was on the cross? Uh, what, you know, his culture, you know, did not support the notion that the Christ would be dying on the cross. But Jesus hung on. To the prophetic word of God. He knew that the Messiah must go to Jerusalem, uh, be crucified and killed and buried in the ground and then be raised the third day. And he knew that because the word of God said that. He had nothing else but the word of God when he was dying on the cross. And he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Pick up your cross and accept the word of God as authoritative. It defines itself. If you respect God, you respect His Word, and you don't impose your cultural perspectives on the Word of God. You don't impose your experience on the Word of God. Your experience, your cultural perspectives, uh, your reasoning capacity, all bows down before the Word of God when you really respect God as God. There are people who are uh, using their experience, using their culture to define the Word of God, to interpret the Word of God, and I want to say with all due respect, you're not treating God as if he's God. Uh, and, and we all should just admit that. Um, Jesus is on the cross. He hung on to the word of God as the authoritative source of his theology. And therefore, he stayed on the cross and saved our souls. Let's remember that. God bless you guys. Have a fantastic week. Bye-bye.